uh, in the second and third centuries, two different plagues struck the people of the Roman Empire. Uh, both plagues were very severe. Some historians estimate that each plague killed something between one quarter and one third of the inhabitants of the vast Roman Empire. Uh, the more famous of these two plagues was known as the Plague of Cyprian. It wreaked havoc among the population of the Roman Empire for a full decade during the third century. And at the height of that pandemic, it is estimated that there may have been 5,000 or more people dying each day. Uh, in the midst of that great suffering, in the midst of that great pandemic, the light of Christ shone brightly through his people. This is how Dionysus, the bishop of the city of Alexandria at that time, described the Christian response to the plague. I quote, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life. In other words, they died serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. But with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which yet, with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape. So while many in the Roman Empire were fleeing from the sick, even at some times leaving some cities virtually deserted, the Christians stayed behind to care for the sick and the dying. And this did not go unnoticed by among the Roman citizens. In fact, one historian notes that a century after the plague, the Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate, who was not a friend as, of Christians as his name might suggest, well, Julian the Apostate lamented as he neared death in 363 that the pagans readily abandoned the sick while the Christians looked after the sick. Oh, the, the response of Christians to the plague of Cyprian was likely a significant factor in the rapid growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire following that plague. And something remarkable happened as the Christians stayed behind to care for the sick and the dying. And this is how one historian put it. Christian death rates were significantly lower than those of the general population. Perhaps only 10%, though the word only is a fearful qualifier. The mutual love of brothers and sisters in Christ meant that, on the one hand, those who provided care were at a higher risk of infection, but on the other, those who were infected had better survival rates because of the care they received. As these Christians made themselves vulnerable to death, they actually found life. Once the plague had swept through, Christians were stronger. They were stronger as a proportion of society, since more of them survived. They had more resilience because they had a robust hope in the face of death. And they were stronger as communities, forging even closer bonds to the sufferings they had faced. Well, church, why did Christians respond the way they did during these plagues? 
I think it's because they took the truths expressed in Psalm 91 to heart. The biblical truths expressed in Psalm 91, I think these Christians had taken to heart. You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 91. You can also find the text of that psalm printed in the back of your bulletin. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you, friends, a couple of questions. The first is, what truths do you set your mind and your heart on when trials and difficulties come? What truths do you set your mind on when trials and difficulties come? Second, think a little bit more recently than the plague of Cyprian. How did you respond when faced with your own global pandemic? With those questions in mind, Now, please follow along as I read Psalm chapter 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Because he he has his heart set on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to your word that we will see you, that you will use it to fix our eyes on you. Father, in your word we find life, and so we pray this morning by your spirit that you would give us life through your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts and minds to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the, the main idea of Psalm 91, and therefore the main idea of this sermon, is simply this. Those who trust in the Lord do not need to fear. Those who trust in the Lord do not need to fear. And in this psalm, we find three things that we are to do in times of trouble. Three things that we are to do, and these three things will serve as the outline of the sermon. The first, set your mind on God. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 for that. Set your mind on God. Second, reset your outlook on life. Reset your outlook on life. That's going to be verses 3 through 13. And then finally, remember that God has set his mind on you. Remember that God has set his mind on you. That will be verses 14 through 16. So first, what are we to do in times of trouble? We are to set 
our mind on God, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 serve as something of an introduction to the psalm. They give us the the main and central truth that the psalmist is going to unpack as we go through it. They give us a and notice that as we are getting these central truths, that these opening verses are focused on God himself. The psalmist focuses our attention as he focuses his attention on God. They make it clear that God is the protector and the defender of those who take refuge in him. And notice what the psalmist is doing in these opening two verses. Well, it seems that he was in some time of difficulty, And he is reminding himself of who God is and the protection and the safety that God will provide to his people. Look at verse 2. The psalmist writes this. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In other translations, it will say this. I will say to the Lord, my refuge. And my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalmist is confessing these truths about who the Lord is. In other words, when times of trouble came, what did the psalmist do first? He reminded himself of just who his God is. Christian, this is what you are to do in times of trouble as well. Well, The psalmist described God as God most high. A God is ruler over all the authorities of the earth. He is higher and more exalted, more powerful than any of the so-called gods in whom people put their trust. He is over every situation. Nothing is outside of his control. The psalmist describes God as God most high. He also describes him as God almighty, El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient for every situation, to meet the needs of his people in every situation. He is capable of meeting the needs of his people. He is willing and able and committed to keeping his promises. He says that God is a refuge and a fortress. He is the protector of his people. His people can run to him and find safety. That sounds very familiar to those verses that Ben read from us from Isaiah 40 earlier in the service, do they not? What did Isaiah say about God? Take a look at your bulletin, flip a couple pages earlier in your bulletin back to Isaiah 40. Verses 18 through 19 of Isaiah 40, God is incomparable. He is greater than the false idols that people have set up. He is most high. Verses 22 through 24, he is above the earth and over the rulers of the earth. Again, God is most high. Verses 25 through 28, he is the creator God, a God of incomparable power. He never grows tired or weary. He is almighty. Verses 29 through 31, what is it that God does for his people? He gives them strength. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. God is a refuge and a fortress for his people. Well, friends, Isaiah wrote those words to the Israelites who had been exiled to Babylon, forcibly taken out of their homeland and moved somewhere else. They were a people in trouble. But what was Isaiah doing? The same thing as the psalmist is doing, reminding people in times of trouble about just who God is. 
Church, is this what you do in times of trouble? Do you remind yourself of the God whom you serve? Do you search the scriptures to see how God is described? To see his characteristics, to see what he has revealed about himself? Do you take time to say like the psalmist, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my strength, my God in whom I trust. Friends, have you taken time to memorize passages like Isaiah 40 or Psalm 91 so that you can draw on the truths of Scripture during times of trouble? Brothers and sisters, this is foundational to the Christian life. You must set your mind on who God is. Your faith, the Christian faith, is founded on who God is and the promises that he has made to his people. It is God and his promises that remain the same even when your circumstances change. God and his promises remain the same no matter what is going on in your life. And friends, when you set your mind on God, It will help you to see your circumstances. It will help you to see the world around you rightly. As you set your mind on God, you will see the world around you correctly. This is where the psalmist turns our attention next in verses 3 through 13. It's going to take us to the second point of the sermon. Reset your outlook on life. You set your mind on God, will reset your outlook on life. Notice the shift in language starting in verse 3 of this psalm. The psalmist has stopped simply speaking to himself, and he has begun addressing others. Church, he is addressing you. He is reminding you of the Lord's commitment to his people. Again, notice the language, verse 3. He himself, God, will rescue you. Verse 4. He will cover you. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. He is reminding you of what the Lord does to those who trust in him. God has committed himself to the the good of his people. And just notice the Father's tender love and care. In verse 4, he is like a father or mother bird who shields and protects his young under his wings. And God is faithful to protect and care for his people. He shows them his his steadfast love and his faithfulness. His people dwell continually and constantly under his care. They never leave his nest. His love and his care does not change. It does not waver. Therefore, as the psalmist puts it in verse 5, you will not fear. You will not fear no matter what comes your way. Friends, this is the application of, of all that the psalmist has said up to this point. All that the psalmist has said up to this point, the application, you will not fear, or you shall not fear, or you should not fear. Friends, the psalmist is applying the truths about God to your life. If you trust in the Lord, you do not need to fear. Friends, just take a moment to think about what you fear in this life. There are things that we all fear. I'm not talking about the fear of things like spiders and cockroaches and ants. But what are you most afraid might happen to you someday? 
What are you most fearful of in this life? Ask yourself, is God greater than that fear? Is God greater than that situation? He is God most high. God Almighty, the refuge and fortress. Is he greater than that fear? Friends, the the psalmist is honest about the existence of danger in this life. The psalmist does not hide the fact that trouble in this world is real. In verses 5 through 7, he really gives a list of all the things that you might fear. The terror of the night. There is great evil and wickedness in the world. In many places in the world, maybe some of the places where you come from, it's not safe to go out at night. It is not safe to walk down the street. Evil is real. The terror of the night exists. The arrows that fly by day. Conflict and war are the reality of our sin-filled world. Some of you may come from countries that have been or are being torn apart by ethnic or religious or political conflict. The war between Russia and Ukraine has been front-page news for well over a year now. Jesus said that there would be wars and rumors of war until he returned. There are arrows that fly by day. There's pestilence that ravages at noon, plagues that stalk in darkness. Disease is an ever-present threat in this world. We just thought about the plagues in the early centuries of the church. We are fresh out of the COVID pandemic. COVID is not gone. We're just not treating it like a pandemic anymore. Cancer is a continual killer. Pestilence still ravages at noon. Plague still stalks in darkness. There's death. Look at verse 7. A a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. Friends, death is a fact of life. Friends, are these things that the psalmist mentions, some of the things that you fear, they may very well be the terror of the night, war and conflict and strife, disease, Death, these are things that I think most people in the world have some fear of. In the face of these real dangers, what does the psalmist say? He says that God's people are safe and secure because God is the protector of his people. Verse 7, the pestilence will not reach you. Verses 9 through 13, because you have made the Lord your refuge and dwelling place, in other words, because you have trusted in him, no harm will come to you and no plague will come near your tent. That's verse 10. Verses 11 and 12, God will even send angels to protect you. Verse 13, we see a picture of God's people not just safe from the troubles and threats of this world, but triumphing over them, trampling on young lions and the serpent. Friends, does this mean that no earthly harm will come to those who put their trust in the Lord? Is that what the psalmist is saying? Just trust in the Lord. Just have enough faith. No earthly harm for you. No sickness. No disease. Does that mean the Lord is promising physical safety and good health to those who have enough faith and trust in Him? Friends, I think the answer to that question is no. Do not believe the Bible promises good health and physical safety to those who trust in him or have enough faith. 
You can find many false teachers who will tell you that. I do not believe that is what the psalmist is teaching here, nor do I believe that is what the Bible teaches. We can list any number of Christians who have been killed in war, who have died of disease. Friends, you may know some faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who perished during the COVID pandemic. The vast majority of the apostles themselves were martyred for the faith. If we go to the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, well, we read beginning in verse 35 that though some of God's people became mighty in battle and conquered kingdoms by faith, other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Nevertheless, they're counted among the faithful. They're in the hall of faith, the famous list of those who placed great confidence and trust in the Lord. And yet, they did not escape suffering and death. If we go back to the plagues of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, this is what Cyprian, the bishop of the city of Carthage, wrote to his fellow Christians. But nevertheless, it disturbs some that the power of this disease attacks our people, Christians, equally with the heathens, as if the Christians believed for this purpose that he might have the enjoyment of the world and this life free from the contact of ills and not as one who undergoes all adverse things here and is reserved for future joy. Though Christians died at a lesser rate during those plagues of the Roman Empire, they still died. Cyprian wrote that the plague killed Christians and non-Christians alike and he noted that this bothered some Christians. It left them confused. But he rebuked them for believing in God simply for the purpose of obtaining a life free from illness and trouble. As if the Christians believed for this purpose, that he might have the enjoyment of the world and this life free from the contact of ills. And not as one who undergoes all adverse things here and is reserved for future joy. And he believed that those who believed in Jesus simply to be free from earthly trouble, that they had no real faith at all. Cyprian went on to write this. When the earth is barren with an unproductive harvest, famine makes no distinction. Thus, when with the invasion of an enemy, any city is taken, captivity at once desolates all. And when the serene clouds withhold the rain, the drought is alike to all. And when the jagged rocks rend the ship, the shipwreck is common without exception to all that sail in her. And the disease of the eyes and the attack of fevers and the feebleness of all the limbs is common to us with others. So long as this common flesh of ours is born by us in the world. In other words, while on earth, Christians and non-Christians alike share in the sufferings of the curse of sin. We all inhabit this body of death. We all inhabit this sin-filled world. My friends, if that is true... And I believe it is. I think Cyprian is right. That what is going on in Psalm 91? What does the psalmist mean 
that no harm will come to you and no plague will come near your tent. Friends, I think verses 7 and 8 give us a clue. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. Verse 8, you will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Well, in the Old Testament particularly, a a widespread pestilence, a, a plague, was associated with God's judgment on a people. Not always, but often. So in Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, God told Pharaoh this, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague or a pestilence, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord reminded Israel of the curses they would receive if they failed to keep his commands when they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 28, 21, this is what the Lord says. If they fail to keep the commands of the Lord, the Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering to possess. We could go to several other examples in Scripture. After David's sin, the Lord struck the people of Israel with a plague. So what truth is the psalmist ultimately encouraging you here with then in Psalm 91? I believe the psalmist is promising that those who trust in the Lord will be spared from God's judgment. To put it in the words of verse 8, those who trust in the Lord will only see or witness, but not experience the punishment of the wicked. They will be safe on the day that God pours out his wrath on evildoers. Sometimes God does inflict an earthly judgment on the wicked. Think of the plagues that he inflicted on Egypt. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. In those cases, perhaps the Lord is giving a guarantee here that the righteous will not fall under that earthly judgment. And just remember the distinction that God made between his people and the Egyptians during the plagues. Think of righteous Lot, who was rescued from Sodom before it was destroyed. However, in most cases, the disease and wars of the world... The terrors of the night, the arrows that fly by day, the plagues that stalk in darkness, well, they are not, they are not God's specific and direct judgment for a specific sin. It is unfruitful and unhelpful, and I think perhaps even wicked to speculate that they are. You will find many people every time a disease or a natural disaster comes, unfortunately, many people who call themselves Christians claiming that this is God's judgment on some specific evil in that land. Well, apart from God telling us so, I do not think that is helpful to do. These natural disasters, conflicts and wars, disease, they are the result of sin. They're part of the general curse of sin. They're just not necessarily a specific judgment on a specific people. And even if they are, God very rarely reveals that. Therefore, these diseases, these wars, natural disasters, the terrors of the night, they affect the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In the words of Cyprian, the power of this disease attacks our people equally with the heathens. So what then is the hope of Psalm 91? What truths had Christians who cared for the sick and the dying during the plagues of the early centuries taken to heart? What freed them from fear as they put their own lives at risk 
to minister to those who were infected. Brothers and sisters, I believe it was the truth that their life was hidden with Christ in God. It was the truth that no matter what happened to them in this life, they would be spared from God's final judgment. It was the truth that for the Christian, it is not death to die. They knew that even if they were infected and did die, their eternal life was secure in the hands of God. They demonstrated their trust and hope by putting their lives on the line to show the love of Christ to others, to minister to the sick and the dying. Church, Christians have the hope of a much greater deliverance than simply deliverance from the air, from arrows and disease, from plague and from the terrors of the night. Now, Christians have the sure hope of full and final delivery from this body of sin and death. We have the assurance of eternal life in Christ, a day of no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain. We have the assurance of eternal life. And we have this assurance because of what Jesus has done for us. Well, let's not forget that Jesus himself, the perfect one and the one who lived to do the will of his father. Jesus was not spared from death. He was not spared the mockings and insults of the crowds. He was not spared the lashes of the Roman guards. He was not spared from the thorns of his crown digging into his flesh. He was not spared from the sufferings of the cross. No, brothers and sisters, he took those for you. And church, the pestilence, in other words, the judgment that you deserve to receive for your sins, but Jesus took in your place. And therefore, by his death, he has freed all those who trust in him from the disease of sin and delivered them from the wrath of God. Look again with me at verse 13 for a moment. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Friends, do you remember God's curse on the serpent from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15? I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Friends, Jesus is the serpent crusher, the one who triumphed over the serpent, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, the one who has defeated Satan at the cross and will fully and finally vanquish him when he returns in glory. We can have victory over sin now because Jesus has won the victory. And we will one day have full and final victory because Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. The hope of your trust in Jesus is not freedom from earthly sickness and earthly suffering. It is the hope of that eternal day when, as we read in Revelation, death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So church... What should you do when earthly troubles come? One, pray for deliverance. God does not promise earthly deliverance, but he can and he does provide it. Not always, but he answers the prayers of his people 
Not always in the way we want, but he listens and he loves you. Pray for his deliverance. Christians during the plagues of the early century were not spared from death, but they did die far more infrequently than those who did not trust in the Lord around them. James 5.14 is, anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. God invites you, brothers and sisters, to pray for him to work. And though God does not promise healing, he does hear the prayers of his people. He delights to answer them. And sometimes he does provide healing. So pray for his deliverance. Second, pray that the Spirit will help you fix your minds on the truth of who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. In fact, friends, one of the best ways for you to set your mind on God and the things of God is to pray. Church, it is a deep and abiding faith in the promise of eternal safety and security that will reset your outlook on life. You set your mind on the eternal security that you have in Christ. That is what will reset your outlook on life. It is a deep and abiding hope in the sure reality of your eternal safety that will change the way that you look at your circumstances. It is by remembering that Jesus has freed you from the wrath to come that you can be freed from fear in this life. It is a deep, abiding faith in God's control over all things that frees you from the fear of things in this world. Brothers and sisters, nothing can harm you outside of God's control. As we read in Romans 8, can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate you from the love of Christ? Well, the answer is no, certainly not. The third thing you can do during times of trouble is pray that God will strengthen you to follow him in faith. In Daniel chapter 3, when mighty King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon threatened to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, unless they bowed down and worshipped the idol he created, well, this is how those three faithful friends responded. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Friends, they were not 100% certain that God was going to rescue them from the fiery furnace. And I think it's safe to say that they did not fear. They were men who had set their hearts and their minds on the truths that we find expressed in Psalm 91. And they were willing to faithfully follow the Lord no matter the cost. They would not bow down and worship the idol. Those Christians who were faithful to show the love of Christ to the sick and dying during the plagues of the early centuries, they had set their minds on those truths. These were the truths that freed Christians from the fear of gathering together for worship when permitted and ministering to one another during the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, in the, the early days of the pandemic, one pastor here in the UAE took in a church member who was infected with covid because her landlord had kicked her out of her accommodations out of his fear over her sickness. But his family's willingness to bring that church member into their home to care for this lady proved to be a profound witness for the gospel to both their church and to the community around them. The Lord 
use those who faithfully served the sick and dying during the plagues of the second and third century to save many Roman citizens. The gospel advanced rapidly. Friends, freedom from fear and freedom to faithfully serve the Lord, even when it comes at personal risk, it comes by reminding yourself of the eternal safety and the eternal security that you have in Jesus Christ. Christ has won the victory. Your greatest problem has been solved. He is a refuge and a fortress for all who trust in him. Friends, when you do not fear during the trials and tribulations of this life, it can have a profound influence on those around you. And it can be a light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, in this text, the third thing that we see we are to do in times of trouble is to remember that God has set his mind on you. First, we are to set our mind on God. Two, by doing that, we're to reset our outlook on life, to reset our view of our circumstances. But as we're setting our mind on God, we should remember that God has set his mind on you. Psalm 91 closes with with one final assurance of God's love and care and protection. One more reminder to strengthen your faith. But friends, this reminder, the closing reminder, does not come from the psalmist. It comes from the Lord himself. It is the Lord speaking to his people in verses 14 through 16 of this psalm. Let me read them again for you. Because he, God, has set his, because God has set his heart on me, because he has his heart set on me, excuse me, uh, because he, sorry, let me start over, because he, the person in trouble, has his heart set on me, God, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I, God, will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Friends, those verses are God's word of assurance for those who have set their heart on him. That's God's word of assurance to those who trust in him and rely on him. Just look how many times God says, I will, in those verses. I count six. I will deliver him, the one who trusts in him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him. I will rescue him. I will satisfy him. A Christian God is not indifferent to your suffering. He sees your suffering. He cares about your troubles. He knows your name. When you cry to him, he says that he will answer you. Church, God will not leave you or forsake you in your suffering. He promises the comfort and guidance and joy of his presence with those who are in trouble. He is not absent, but an ever-present help in times of trouble. It seems sometimes from this psalm that he even sends his angels to minister to you during times of trouble. And church, God promises to protect you in the midst of your suffering and ultimately, one day, deliver you from it. It may not be earthly deliverance. Friends, you are assured of one day being delivered from all your troubles. One day you will be free from this body of death. 
One day you will be free from this sin-filled world and you will have an eternity in the presence of your God. Christian, this is God's word of comfort to you during times of trouble. And Christian, these are again the truths that you must remind yourself of when you face troubles in this life. You are to remind yourself of all that God has promised to do for you. It is these truths that are to free you from fear. It is these truths that are to motivate and encourage you to serve the Lord faithfully. Setting your mind and heart on these truths is what it means to cling to the Lord as your refuge and fortress. If you want the Lord to be your refuge and fortress, you cling to these truths about the Lord. That is what it means to trust in the Lord. When you have times of trouble, you remind yourself of these things. Brothers and sisters, I know it might feel like I am sharing the same application with you over and over again in the sermon. Set your mind on who God is. Remember what he has done for you and promised to do. Remind yourself of his faithfulness and protection in times of trouble. If it seems like I am sharing the same application with you over and over, it is because I am sharing the same application with you over and over. But that is because it is so important. I mean, the entirety of Psalm 91 was written to encourage and strengthen your faith by reminding you of these truths. There are no commands in Psalm 91. All it contains is reminders of God's loving faithfulness. All it, may, all it is is reminders of God's protection to you in times of trouble. It takes the truths of who God is, what he has done, what he has promised to do, and applies them to the circumstances of your life. Friends, one of the keys of the Christian life, one of the, the most important truths to living a life of faithfulness, is simply to preach the truths of Scripture to yourself. It is to remind yourself of the basic truths that are repeated over and over again in Scripture. If you think I'm giving you the same application over and over again, just read through the Psalms. You find these themes throughout the Psalms and throughout the Bible. And this is how one well-known English preacher from the 20th century put it, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life or we might say most of your fear in life, is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Instead of allowing this self to talk to you, you start talking to yourself. Stand up and say, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand and you have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope thou in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say, I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
Brothers and sisters, stop listening to the troubles in your life and stop preach and start preaching the truths of Scripture to yourself. If you want to live free from fear, if you want to begin setting your heart on the Lord and trusting Him as your refuge and fortress, stop listening to yourself and your problems. Stop letting them dictate your attitude and your behavior. Start preaching to yourself instead. Preach the truth of Psalm 91. Preach the truths of Isaiah 40. Preach the truths found in other countless places of Scripture. But church, to be able to preach these truths to yourself, you must know them. And to know them, you must devote yourself to God's Word. Hide it in your heart so that it is there when troubles come. That is how you set your mind on God. It's how you reset your outlook on life. It's how you remember that God has set his mind on you. Those who trust in the Lord do not need to fear. Let's pray.